Well, if I can begin this morning, let me thank you for all of your concern. Most of you are aware that my dad passed away a few weeks ago. We were in central Indiana over the last few days at his funeral uh, with all a family, and uh, the travel went well. I uh, have continually said I don't see how people live in that cold weather anymore, but uh, we had a, a really a glorious time, a wonderful service on Friday night, and then we were able to travel home as it ended up late last night. But thank you for your prayers, your cards, uh, your expressions of condolence. And um, it was just a, a time in which we believe not only was he honored, but far more important, we believe Jesus was honored uh, because of him. And so uh, we were appreciative of that. One of the stories that we told at the funeral was an experience he had preaching years ago. It was one of my favorite stories. Uh, I may have told you this before, but it was back in the days when hearing aids were wired and the controls were worn uh, by men. The controls were held in usually their shirt pocket. And dad was preaching on as he typically did. And uh, one of the aspects of dad's preaching is you never really had any question about what he was saying. It was, he was pretty clear. Um, I, I guess I described him last week and I used the term horvitzer. What I meant to say by that is that Dad's opinion, let me make it more simple. If there was a fly swatter or a rocket launcher, he said, always use the rocket launcher. That was his choice. And verbally, that was the way he functioned. And so he's preaching along, and this guy's getting madder and madder. And he's preaching along and preaching along, the guy's getting madder and madder. And finally, the fellow waits until Dad's looking at him. He knows he has Dad's attention, and he reaches in his pocket and turns off the hearing aid. Some of us as preachers, we've had to deal with those kinds of things from time to time. I'm sure it's happened to me more than I know, but I only specifically remember one time when someone stood up and walked out while I was preaching angry about what I was saying. And the reason I tell all of that is because I was talking about this text, the text we're going to look at this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Or he didn't like what I had to say, and he got up and walked out and somewhat noisily let it be known that he was not happy. This text has a lot of scandal in it, and it has a bit of controversy, but it also has some practical lessons and challenges for us here today. We're working our way through 1 Corinthians, most of you know, and so far we've seen that the problem in that ancient church, which sounds in many ways contemporary to us, the problem that Paul has addressed so far is the problem of factions, the problem of choosing sides, the problem of arrogance in which you look down on others, or they were proud of their giftedness, and therefore they were dismissive of others. These factions were rooted in shallow and pretentious, and what we called, remember, worldly thinking. And when we use the word worldly, we mean adopting the attitudes of the current culture around us which, generally speaking, is always contrary to the ways of God. That's part of the point that Paul's making so far in 1 Corinthians. There's the wisdom of the world, which is foolishness to God. There's the wisdom of God, which the world calls foolishness. And so this worldly thinking resulted in factions. But now this morning, as we will begin in chapter 5, there are other issues that were troubling the church. What we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is there were sexual issues And then also, as we come to chapter 6, there were legal wranglings. In fact, there there was a litigious contingent in the church, and it seems like they were eager to sue one another, even though they came to worship together on the Lord's Day. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. And so what we find all the way through 1 Corinthians, what we'll find again today, is an opportunity 
Paul takes this opportunity to remind the people of that ancient church who they were in Christ and all that they had in Christ and therefore how they should be living, what they should look like. And you recognize, as Paul says this to those ancient people, the Word of God says the same to us today. Who we are in Christ, we need to recognize all that we have in Christ, and then we need to understand what that looks like, not just on Sunday morning when we sit with our Bibles in our laps, but what it looks like on Tuesday afternoon and what it looks like on Saturday. We we need to understand everything in between, the time frame in between. We need to recognize what it means to be in Christ. And so if you have your Bibles there or your devices, please find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And for our reading this morning, I think we'll begin with the last verse of chapter 4, uh, 1 Corinthians 4.21, and we'll read all the way down through the end of chapter 5, although that will not be our whole text this morning, but we just like to give us a sense of uh, context. And so as you'll see in verse 1, he talks about a rod. He's talking about a rod of discipline, and then immediately he begins to talk about an occasion in where the rod of discipline, at least by way of analogy, needs to be wielded by the church in the city of Corinth. That's part of the application. That's what we'll see. So look with me, beginning at the end of chapter 4. Remember, this is God's Word for us today. And so there are lessons and there are applications for us today, even though this is an ancient book. These are, as we've just sung, the wonderful words of life. And again, where else would we go? That's the reason we take the time to do this every Lord's Day. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 21. Follow along as I read, please. Paul says, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I am now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 
There are some scholars who look at the way that Paul introduces this shocking subject, and they speculate that even as he was writing what we know as the first four chapters, all of a sudden he got this further report of what was happening in Corinth, of this scandalous situation. I don't know that we can know that with any kind of certainty. I doubt we can. But it is interesting that Paul has been going along and we've been looking at relational issues and we've been looking at, at the attitudes we have toward others and this problem of being attracted by the sophistication of the world around us. And then all of a sudden he says, oh, and by the way, I hear what's really going on. And it is a shocking sexual scandal. And so what we find here, let me call it this this morning, perhaps it will help you remember it, we have an ecclesiastical calamity. Because I want to guarantee you, when there's this kind of sexual sin and scandal in the church, it is a calamity. It is a calamity in the ecclesiastical gathering that is the church. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to walk you kind of step by step through these verses, at least down to verse number 9. And as we do so, uh, I want you to think through what we find here, and then we will, at the end, we will make some practical and personal applications to the principles that we find here. So first of all, in the matter of this calamity, look at the scandal. And the scandal is, can I say it this way? It is scandalous. He says in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Sexual immorality is that Greek word from which we get pornography. It was a general word for sexual sin, and it covered a broad, a broad spectrum of categories of sexual sin. It included adultery, it included prostitution, it included bestiality, it included homosexuality, it included pseudo-religious sex, like in the ancient religions where there were prostitutes and sex was linked with worship of idols. And it also included, the matter before us today, it included the issues of incest. And the times, you don't need me to tell you this, I won't belabor the point, the times in Corinth are not drastically different from the times that we're facing today. You, you would not have preached this text 200 years ago the way we have to preach it today. But the reality is we're back living in Corinth again, aren't we? And we find that this attitude, as one author said, uh, speaking of the Gentiles in the ancient world, Gentiles took their pleasure where and when they wanted. Well, that sounds like today, doesn't it? Just the issue is pleasure, and we're going to have pleasure however we want it. And so there is an aspect in which there is this reality that the scandal was commonplace, but it really wasn't, because look at what he says in the next phrase. He says, this kind of immorality, it's of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has, that is in the New Testament, that term means he's married to, very likely, for a man is married to his father's wife. This was a case of functional incest. Now all cultures, according to Paul, and historians tell us this, all cultures at this time abhorred this type of sexual activity. There are Roman laws that we can find that made it a crime to marry your mother-in-law. Obviously, your mother as well. Roman law said that. The name Cicero is familiar to many of you. If you know history, he was an orator in Rome. He talked about this in one of his public addresses of what a shameful thing it would be to even talk about the idea that you would have a sexual relationship with someone like this in your family. 
And so culture, and of course we now know, at least in, in literal familial incest, we know that, that nature teaches us that this is inappropriate. But this was especially inappropriate because of what God had said to ancient Israel in what you and I call the Old Testament. And the Jesus followers in Corinth knew the Old Testament. Basically, the Old Testament was their Bible. And they knew, therefore, that Luke 18 and also Deuteronomy 22 specifically and graphically forbid this kind of sexual conduct. In fact, because Paul was leveraging that truth, it's likely the reason that he uses this term, his father's wife, instead of saying stepmother. Because there's a Greek word that was in use at the time for stepmother. But he didn't choose that word. He chose his father's wife because that's the language of the Greek translation of the Old Testament that people would have been familiar with. And he was linking this scandal with what God has said thousands of years earlier, this is not appropriate, it's off limits. In fact, God's language in both Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 22 is stunningly harsh about this kind of sexual perversion. And therefore, he was linking this scandal to God's clear prohibition using the language of existing scriptures. You'll note that the woman is not named or rebuked. This likely means that she was not a believer. She was not a church member. And can I just say that when we talk about Corinth or any ancient church in the Bible, a believer was a church member. You didn't have to clarify that. If they were a Jesus follower, they were part of the church. If they weren't part of the church, then everyone assumed they were not a Jesus follower. I'll just leave that there. I won't say any more about it, but nevertheless, that's what we find in the New Testament. So look in verse 2. Paul says, are, and are you arrogant? Are you puffed up? It's the same word that we've seen already. Ought you not rather to mourn? And that word mourn, here will give you some insight from the Greek, it means mourn. It means as one who is bereaved. It means brokenhearted over death, over loss. That should have been the attitude, Paul says. And instead, you're arrogant and puffed up. They had an easygoing attitude about sin when Paul says you should be brokenhearted about this. The church father Chrysostom said they should have been as if a pestilence had overtaken them. And instead, they were sophisticated and they had it all together. They felt like they had arrived. And evidently, as difficult as this might be for us to grasp, they were holding this circumstance up and, seeing, and saying, see how open-minded we are. I mean, see, see how broad-minded we are. They should have been mourning. And so functionally, they had no discernment. Now, we've already seen in 1 Corinthians, they were already, they considered themselves elite. We're the gifted ones. We're the ones that have sophistication. We're intellectual. We have wisdom. But they had this circumstance in their church family, and instead of responding in the most basic and, and fundamental way, of recognizing it for what it is and mourning over it and then addressing it, as we're going to see, they had the precisely opposite reaction. Even though they were supposedly elite. In fact, they were arrogant about it. They were puffed up. That's the same word. Look in your Bibles. Look back in chapter 4, in verse 6. It's the same word that Paul's already reminded them of. He says that none of you, at the end of verse, uh, end of verse 6 in chapter 4, that none of you be puffed up in favor of one against another. 
He uses the same word down in verse 18 of that chapter. He says, some are arrogant, the ESV translates. It's basically the same word. Some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. In other words, coming to confront you in your sin. You have the same thing in verse 2. We just saw it. You are arrogant. And then in verse 6, it talks about boasting. Your boasting is not good. So instead of coming to the place of mourning appropriately, they were arrogant and puffed up. Now, scholars try to imagine, what were they really saying about this? Evidently, it wasn't hidden. So what was their philosophy in recognizing this? I mean, if their pagan neighbor said, hey, I know you all, you know, you, on the first day of the week, you always gather together and worship this Jewish Messiah that you think is still alive, even though he was killed on a cross. I know that. But I also know that in your crowd, you've got this guy, and you know, you know he's living with his mother-in-law, right? So what would have been their response to that? They were puffed up and arrogant about it. It's possible, because you see, this, you see hints of this in the New Testament, it's possible that there was this strange dualism where they were so spiritual, they considered themselves spiritual, and they lived in the spiritual realm that they basically landed the place where they said, the body doesn't matter. So what you do with the body doesn't make any difference because after all, we're spiritual. That's a possibility. And by the way, that dualism, that thread of that same kind of thinking has followed down throughout all of church history. So it's possible that that was their position, but it's more likely that just simply they didn't like the narrow-mindedness of Paul. It, it seems so unsophisticated, even though what they were defending was looked down upon by the Gentiles, by the pagans. Evidently, they had embraced some kind of radical sexual sophistication, and basically, when that skeptic would have asked that question, they would have said, see how enlightened we are? I'm tempted to take this a little further. See how seeker-oriented we are? Come be part of our church. You don't have to deal with your sin. You can live any way you want. Look, we, we, we accept this person. You know, Jesus doesn't have hang-ups, so come on and be part of us. Look how enlightened we are. One way or another, they were completely missing the boat. Now, this is perhaps a good place to stop and pause for a moment and address an issue that I think is troubling for a lot of people today, and that is, why is sex such a big deal to Christians? Why is it such a big deal to the church? Why is it such a big deal in the Bible? Is it true that we just have sexual hang-ups? Is it true that we just, you know, we're fixated on sex in some kind of perverted way or, or some way that's uptight? The, the, the classic criticism these days is that we're puritanical. I'm, re I'm doing a lot of reading on the Puritans right now. It turns out the Puritans loved sex in marriage. I mean, the, the idea of Puritanism being something, an attitude that hated sexual activity is completely ahistorical. It is inaccurate but they understood sex was a gift for marriage. It was a gift to be enjoyed and enjoyed with relish, but enjoyed only in a marriage relationship. But why does it, it seem that Christianity and conservative churches and people who believe the Bible, why does sex seem to be such a big deal to us? Here's the reason. It's, it's not just that God wanted a set of laws. It's not just that God was thinking, well, what, what are these creatures going to enjoy and let me make a rule against it? 
This is not the way our God works. It's not the way the God of creation works. But what you find is that marriage and the sexual love that is part of marriage and a wonderful part of it, marriage and sexual love were designed by the Creator to show and demonstrate the intimacy and the significance of His commitments to His people. So you find that in the Old Testament with His relationship with Israel as His beloved wife, His heartbreak when His beloved wife has been unfaithful to Him. Then you find it in the New Testament in Ephesians 5 where it says that that the love that Christ has for the church is the way that a husband is to care for his wife. It's not that sex is just some, some kind of random issue that God sets up rules over. It's that He designed sex to be an indication of His kind of commitment to us. And therefore, it is never, and here's the point today, it is never merely individualistic. And that's our great challenge today. Because the waters in which we swim, the culture in which we live, it is given over to such self-centeredness, to such, if I can use a technical phrase, it's a radical, expressive individualism. It basically says, you can live your life the way you want to live it without any boundaries. You have the right to make all of your own decisions. You can choose to live however you choose to live. This is individualism. And so the idea of sexual boundaries, these seem quaint and repressive. In fact, and this is the language of our culture today, the idea of sexual boundaries seems not just repressive, but oppressive. And that's what we have. And so, going back to this text, even though the pagans expressed disapproval, Roman and Greek cultures expressed disapproval of this kind of sexual relationship, today many might say, you know what, it's not like it's his mother, right? I mean, I dare say some of us, in looking at this text, we think, well, we can understand a provision that you shouldn't have sexual relationships with your sister or with your wife or, or mother, but after all, there's no physical connection here. There's no relation. And so what's the big deal? And this tends to be the way we think about sexuality. And the reason we would say it's no big deal is because there, will no, there won't be any consequences of disease. There won't be any consequences of genetic difficulty that comes from it. So after all, everybody live and let live. You know as well as I do, that would be the attitude of our culture. That if a guy wants to marry his mother-in-law, if his dad has died or he deserted and, and left her, then he's got the freedom to do that. Because after all, who would tell him how to live his life? Who would tell him what to do with his body? Are we so hung up that we're concerned about who he sleeps with? This is the attitude of the culture. You know it, I know it. Whereas the reality is, this question of what's a body for anyway, today the answer is always for sexual expression. That's the reason we have bodies. The primary, think about it, the primary reason we have bodies is for the purpose of sexual expression. That's the world in which we live. But notice what God says about the body. We'll get to this text in a few weeks, but in 1 Corinthians 6, 13, Paul says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, the body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Quite simply, despite what our desires might want and our culture might say, we don't get to make these kinds of calls. Sexual pleasure, sexual activity 
is a gift of God designed into the marriage relationship for specific purposes of union and intimacy, and it is to be a picture of God's commitment to us. And therefore, our deciding that we can pursue sexual activity in a way that might satisfy us or or please us or be consistent with the culture around us basically says, God has no authority over my sexuality. I'll live how I want to live. That's the reason it's a big deal. Now, Paul goes on, beginning in verse 2, the middle of the verse, to give a protocol. Something had to be done about this. Something had to be done. And so look again at the text with me in verse 2, the middle part of the verse. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. There are two goals to Paul's specific instruction, the protocol that he gives. But brought more broadly than that, there are two goals to what you and I would call church discipline or church restoration. The first, the first, as we'll see, is there is the possibility that by this pressure that's put on this guilty person, that they would repent and be restored to the body. So it's an individual concern. Essentially, what we're going to see is Paul says, someone who's done this kind of sin, if you exclude him from the body, the first goal is that he would recognize the seriousness of his sin and acknowledge it and repent of it and then be restored. But there's a secondary concern, and it's clear in the text. It's not just the individual restoration of this person, but it's also the ongoing damage that's done to the health of the body if we allow it to go unaddressed. Not just a public reputation, But there's also the systemic reality that if we're just comfortable with this kind of sin existing in our body, we are no longer a functioning body. We're no longer a healthy body. We are a body that is tainted with sinfulness. And before we're through, you're going to see Paul's language that proves that. And so something's got to be done. Paul says, remove him. Look at verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now watch this. Here's what you have here. You have the congregation, and we can read that membership, because if you're a part of the body, you are understood to be part of the body. So the membership of the church at Corinth was to affirm this apostolic decision that Paul had already made. And you notice in this egregious and extreme and public situation, There's not a lot of time. There's not a lot of patience. There's not a lot of laboring with this circumstance. We don't know what intermediary steps had taken place in trying to confront this person, but it was so public, it was so scandalous, and it was so egregious that Paul says, I've made the decision, and the responsibility of the church as the members, the responsibility of the church was to engage and activate, affirm and then activate that decision and so this is clearly, I want to challenge your thinking today. I'm not, I'm not just beating a dead horse. I think that's a saying, right? I'm not just beating a dead horse. I'm, I'm trying to make a point that is, it seems to me clear in the text. This is some kind of gathered, identifiable body. This is not just four Christians that are around the table at Starbucks saying, what are we going to do about Sam? This is Sam's church family this is, this is a, a group of people that identify as a church that, that have leaders that they follow. They, they gather to observe the ordinances. They, the, the existence of a building is completely meaningless to this discussion. But it is the gathering of the people. 
And the assumption of Paul is, you know who's in and you know who's out, and everyone who is in needs to deal with this matter. This was not some loose affiliation of random believers. These are members of the church that are responsible. And so look at, he fleshes it out in verse 4. When you are assembled, and this is a public assembly, not necessarily public, let me clarify, not public to pagans or to the outside, but this is not just a secret gathering, for instance, of just the elders. This was a, a corporate gathering of the church that come, had come together. They were to come together to deal with this issue because it was a public issue. You've got to deal with this. The shame was public. The scandal was public. And therefore, the response of the church needed to be public. Again, I'm not suggesting public to the world around us because the world has no part of this decision. But it should be a public corporate decision of all the members of the church. When you are assembled, verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Now, all I'll say about those phrases, the name of the Lord Jesus, Paul says, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. All that we can take away from that is that this is a solemn, literal, judicial assembly where the people of God come together and they make a decision. It is a judicial, solemn procedure. We've got to do something about this sinner who is in an egregious way shaming the name of Christ and pursuing immorality, and yet he still claims to be part of our church. You are to deliver, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan. It's a stunning concept. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Do you see Paul's concern? Paul's concern is not, that guy's a bad guy. We need to make him miserable. It's not, that guy's such a bad guy. We never want to have anything to do with him ever again. It's that that guy is in trouble. And if he is indeed a believer, he needs to experience the chastening of God that Satan is allowed to do in God's providence and he needs to experience that in such a way because our desire is that even though he might end up dead physically, that his spirit would be saved in the last day. This was Paul's concern. By the way, this connects with chapter 3, verse 17, where there's a warning there about anyone who destroys the temple of God, God will destroy. There, there are consequences when you taint and destroy the temple of God. And once again, I should remind you, we're not talking about a physical building. This is not vandalism of the physical property. This is vandalism upon the spiritual health of the body of Christ as we gather. And there are consequences to it. This relates to the discipline that we have in synagogues. We find records of the synagogues who would discipline a member who publicly scandalized the Jewish minority in front of Gentiles. We have ancient records of that, and it's a model that follows the same pattern, because this one, if left unaddressed, he will shame and taint the name of Jesus. Because after all, what is the church? The church is the body of Christ, and it's to be done with all of the members. In my long ministry, I've had several occasions to have to practice church discipline with a goal toward restoration. 
and one of the most clear-cut cases I ever had also caused a level of conflict because one of our elders could not get over this idea that we were going to publicly discipline a woman that had clearly, she had deserted her family, she had no interest in restoration, she had to be addressed. She was a key part of the church, including leading our WANA program, and she had just walked away from her marriage. And after patiently, because this was not the kind of grievous sexual circumstance you have here, we patiently gave her time, and finally as elders we said, we need to let the membership know that she's excluded now from the congregation. And I had one elder that said, no, 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 no. The elders can handle this. The elders can make this decision. And that defeats the purpose that Paul is trying to draw out in this, in this context, that when everyone knows, when it's a public circumstance, that church needs to know how it's dealt with. And that's what we find here. Now, I guess I need to pause because... We've got all kinds of different experiences in our histories as you're listening to me. And some of you are nodding, and some of you are looking at me like I have lost my mind. Okay? There's one element I, I need to be clear about. We are not suggesting that every time a sin shows up in your life, that you get run out of the church. And there are many people that when they hear about church discipline and restoration, that's the conclusion they come to. And I want to tell you that from time to time, you hear extremist examples of churches that are so eager to discipline someone that they go around and, and they're looking in everybody's life trying to find somebody that, that, that is in sin. And sin can be, you know, hawking at the guy that pulled over on the 101, or sin can be stealing somebody's parking place. I don't know. You know, these kind of superficial issues, or it can be more significant, but. You read the Bible with common sense. How's that? Is that you, you might ought to write that down. We should read the Bible with common sense. And the kinds of examples we find in the New Testament where this kind of official action takes place, it is public, it is grievous, it is unrepented of, it is shameful. If I were church disciplined for every time I spoke inconsiderately to my wife, you know. You would have had to find a pastor, a, long, a new pastor, a long time ago, right? These are the ongoing sins and failures that we struggle with, and the entire New Testament addresses those. We should strive to walk in the Spirit. We should forgive one another. We should, indeed, we should counsel and, and encourage one another. We should, we should confront one another where needed. We recognize that all of those, that's part of living life. But clearly in the Bible, Paul gives several examples. The sermon would be too long for me to give you all the examples. But there are cases where the sin is so extreme, the shame is so public, their repentance is so absent that the church needs to deal with it. And that's what we're talking about here. That kind of circumstance. And so what we find is that the offender is to be, listen to this phrase, the offender, the scandalous man, he's to be sent back to his preferred domain. You see, he's choosing what world he wants to live in. He may still call himself a believer. Evidently, he hadn't deserted the church. But, but he has chosen with his lifestyle, with his immorality, he has chosen a different king. He has chosen a different lord. 
And so Paul says, deliver him over to that Lord and let him deal with the consequences. Because there is a different domain that you can live in. There's a different king, there's a different Lord, there's a different master. The New Testament makes this clear. You know these passages. In 1 John 5, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Paul says, let him go back into that world. Jesus acknowledged this, encountered it in his temptation. In Luke chapter 4, the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority in their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. And you notice Jesus doesn't stop and say, it's not yours, Satan. You don't have that authority. In this time, in this fallen world, Satan has that authority. He's the God of this world, this world system. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And so all Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 5 is this is the way this guy's choosing to live. So let him go live that way. And let him deal with the consequences. And there's a mystery here. I, I can't... I can't explain it, but there's a mystery that in some way, when he's released, when the church officially acknowledges that, he is then subject to Satan in a way that when we are faithfully engaged in a church body, we are protected. That's implied. I can't understand. I can't explain that to you. I just know that that's, that's what he's saying. Deliver him to Satan. He says the same kind of thing in 1 Timothy. So there is some sense in which there's a contrast here. Paul's talking about the body of Christ, and he's basically saying either the body is going to be damaged by this ongoing presence, as we'll see in a moment. It's really a kind of infection. The body of Christ is going to be damaged, or on the other hand, you let the body of the offender experience the consequences. And the goal, it seems to be, is remedial. It's restoration. And we'll look at this more next week because it's a, it has to do with the, the practical applications that we find at the end of the chapter about how do we handle this, about interacting with people that live different ways than we do. We'll, we'll look at that next week. But it seems to me as I struggled with this this week that Paul, Paul is assuming he's giving the benefit of the, of the doubt. He doesn't say here, this guy's an apostate He's bound for hell. He shouldn't be in the church. Paul seems to be saying, he says he's a believer. Okay, if he's a believer, we're going to put him out of the church. Let Satan have his way with him, and we'll see if he comes to repentance. It's as though Paul is saying, we'll take him at his word. He says he's saved. We'll see what happens. And perhaps he's not really, but time and repentance will tell. And we do need to recognize, before we go any further to to move on toward the end, we need to recognize that God in his providence uses physical suffering to call back erring believers. Not just those who have gone through church discipline, but all of us. Now you know that there are all kinds of theological issues involved in this. Just because you're suffering right now with a physical disease does not, on a one-to-one correspondence, mean that you've sinned in some way. The book of Job makes that clear, right? Go read the book of Job. Job was a righteous man, and God allowed physical affliction. But as I've warned you before, 
It is also the case that when you go through a time of suffering, and particularly physical suffering, you should always ask, God, are you trying to get my attention here? We'll look at it in a few months, but when you come to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, we read this, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. God uses physical affliction even for his own children, to chasten and to correct us. So that's the protocol, as uncomfortable as it is for us. Now look at the exhortation beginning in verse 6. Because what Paul does, then he, he seems to recognize this is going to be a challenge for this church family. So he gives them, by way of illustration, he gives them exhortation from daily life and also, again, from Israel's history. Look in verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Now here's what he's going to do. He says, your boasting is not good. And he's trying to correct. He's trying to correct, first of all, their actions. But we also find he's trying to correct their affections, their emotions. And at the end of the day, that comes down to what they believe. And that's what, he, that's what he gives us in these next few verses. So he uses an illustration in verse 6. Do you see it? He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now in this illustration, the sinner isn't the leaven. His sin is. In this case, it's this grievous sexual sin. Uh, you know, leaven is basically, functionally, it's like yeast. It's, it's fermentation. And the characteristics of that, there are at least two that are important. It grows, spreads quickly to the point where it then permeates the, the, the substance. Loaf of bread, you put sourdough starter in it, right? And you leave it there. The idea is that it will spread and it will grow and multiply. And that's what you have with sin. Another way, it's a different metaphor, but can I go here? It's like infection. This kind of sin, make no mistake, it's viral. And one virus then reproduces itself in the body. And Paul says that's, that's the way it is with sin. If you just let it go, it will not lay dormant. It will affect everything. I thought of the, with all the rains that are happening, I thought of the, the tragic mud flows that you all experienced before I moved here. I, I think that's a picture of sin. Where did those start? They started with just some water, right, up in the mountains, some water running off, and picked up debris, and picked up a little more debris, and then picked up some more debris as gravity brought it all downhill until it was devastating in its effect. You want to know what sin is in your life? That's what sin is. You think you're going to play with it? That would have been like standing above Montecito a few years ago and putting your hand out and trying to stop the mud flow. And that's the personal application that we're landing at before we're through this morning. Because this is not just a principle that has to do with the body of Christ, but it's a practical principle that has to do with our own lives. In fact, that's what Paul is getting at here. So he uses this illustration of leaven, or you might want to say sourdough or fermentation, but then in verse 7, he broadens it out. That reminds him of Passover and the practices that you can go read about it in Exodus 12. So in verse 7, he says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And he's talking about the Passover feast where, where at the time of Passover, there's the responsibility to get rid of all the leaven in the house because you can't be waiting on leaven because they're going to be leaving Egypt, right? And so get it all out. 
And so he leverages that as an example. And he says, you need to get rid of leaven because really you are unleavened. This is who you are. Be who you are. You, you are God's people. You are the church. You are sanctified. You are saints. Now take action to prove it and to demonstrate it. We are a people, a holy people, for a holy God made holy by Christ Jesus. This is who we are for believers. And that's the incongruity, that's the folly of allowing that kind of grievous public sin to just coexist. So he's using this as an illustration. He's basically saying, having been cleansed, we should consistently cleanse out. We should clean out ourselves. It's a functional holiness that not just as a church family, but individually. Where are we allowing sin to coexist? Where are we just happy with enough disobedience because we can manage it? And after all, it's secret. It's not like this kind of public scandal, so let's just live with it. Paul says, no, 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 no. Because we are, in our spiritual condition, our position we are unleavened. We are without sin. We are saints. We are sanctified. This is our position in Christ. And therefore, in this in this in-between time between our redemption and our death, or when Jesus comes, we have a responsibility. Spiritually, we are unleavened, and we should remove the leaven from our lives functionally and practically. And then he broadens it out to the festival, beginning there in verse 7. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Now here's the point. In the Passover celebration, go read Exodus 12. The first thing they were supposed to do is they were supposed to remove all of the, all, all of the leaven as part of this process where then the Passover lamb would be sacrificed and the blood was put on the doorpost and the death angel would pass over the house. And so they weren't supposed to abide with leaven in their home because the Passover lamb was to be shed, and the death angel was to pass over them. And Paul's leveraging this as an example, and he's basically saying, our Passover lamb has died, and what are you doing? You're still living with leaven. You're, you're, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's the one who died for our sins, that God's judgment might pass over us. But then in our lives, when we're supposed to be getting all the leaven out of our lives on a regular basis, we're just happy to coexist. Be serious about it, it says. Look in verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice. Why does he bring malice up? Because that's what he's talked about through the whole letter so far. Malice and bitterness. So this is not just a sexual issue. It's an issue of the way we think in worldly ways. It's the way we relate to one another. And don't let that leaven stay, the, the, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, because that's what the church is. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. So our Passover lamb, is, lamb has already been slain, but we're here hoarding and hiding leaven in our lives, the leaven of sin and rebellion. And listen, the burden of this text the burden of this text is that when strangers see only a reflection of what they already know in the church, they're not going to see the church for what it really is. And when your neighbors see only the same values, the same coexistence, the same perhaps lazy attitude about sin or holiness, when they see that, they see you living as no different than they live. And there's no compelling call to what we would call the gospel. Get rid of the leaven. Celebrate the festival. 
This is not a time of, of, uh, in, in which our lives are perpetually in mourning. We're to mourn over this kind of sin. But our ongoing lives are to be lives of celebration. Why? Because we've been declared righteous. God's taken care of the leaven because he put all of our leaven on the body and the life and the death of his son. That's how we should live. I've got two minutes to finish. All right, I'm going to hurry. Here are some contemporary implications. First question that we have to ask is, what must we do? What must we do? And let me tell you this. No church, no church can prevent evil. But when we find or see within the church body egregious public sin, the church must pursue this kind of restorative discipline. It's important to understand that this is our responsibility and not to be what someone has called a gossip Gestapo, out to try to catch and condemn offenders. We're supposed to be concerned family members, family with one of another. We're brothers and sisters. And if you see your brother and sister, you know this. Some of you have lived it. You see your brother and sister making disastrous decisions that will only end up in misery for them and for their family. What do you do? You try to address it. You try to do something about it. That's what we must do. But in our individual lives, too, some of us need to investigate the status of our leaven. Some of us need to engage in a surgical operation to cut out the leaven. We need a clean sweep of our lives. And there's a sense in which every Lord's Day gives us that opportunity. We're refreshed in the Word of God. We renew our minds, but we should renew our minds daily. What must we do? But you see... What you do is linked to what you feel. You, what, at the end of the day, the decisions we make are driven by our desires. What must we feel? This is what the Puritans called our affections, what we love, what we care about. And the, Paul says when we come up with this kind of grievous sin, we should be mourning. It should break our hearts, not that we are apathetic, not that we are indifferent to it, because apathy, you know this, apathy is the difference, the opposite of love. But if we are characterized by love, if we love our God, if we love the other people in our church, if we love the reputation of Jesus through a church like ours, then we will mourn when we face this kind of immorality. And we will have to deal with it. And by the way, I'm not reading into the text because by the time we get to chapter 13, what does Paul say the church at Corinth really needs? It needs love. It's the love chapter. That's what you need. And that has to do with how we feel, what we love, our emotions, our affections, what we desire. You say, well, I don't know how to change how I feel. Well, I'm with you there. But at the end of the day, what we feel drives what we do. But if what we do is driven by what we feel, what we feel is driven by what we believe to be most true. What must we believe? Our affections, our loves are rooted in what we believe to be most valuable. That's what it means to love something. If you love sexual pleasure, then that's what you will sooner or later chase after. 
because you believe that to be the greatest value. But if you come to believe, if you have your thinking renewed, if you change the way your heart and your mind interact with this world to where you see the glory of Jesus, to where you see the wonder of the treasure that Jesus is, and you find the love of Him as He loves you, and then you love Him and you love those around you, especially those who are in the body of Christ, God's Spirit is eager to reproduce this love in us, and it's what we believe to be most fundamentally valuable. So the question this morning is, what must you believe? What must you believe about ultimate reality? What must you believe about your sin? What must you believe about the way God forgives sinners? Let me just end with this. What must you believe with the way about how God forgives you. How you're accepted by a holy God. That kind of sexual sin, maybe it's never been that egregious for you. I hope not, but it doesn't matter because all of us are guilty of sexual sin. All of us are guilty of, of greed. All of us are guilty of consuming self-centeredness. So what do you believe about the holy God of heaven and how he interacts with you. It's all by grace. And when you're humbled again by that unspeakable gift of God's love, that Paul says in Romans 5, he says, while we were still sinners, Christ loved us. That's what we're to believe. And that's the reason we keep coming back to the gospel because it can fashion what we believe, and then what we believe affects what we desire and feel and our affections and our emotions, and then what we do flows out of that. That's what we have to recognize when scandal comes to church. Father, speak to our hearts about these things. We struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We want to be a faithful church. We want to be a church that accepts and overlooks faults. But we also want to be a church that is willing to love people enough to speak into their lives when it's needed. This takes wisdom and discernment. We ask for that for our church family. And we'd also ask that we would recognize and celebrate the incredible identity you've given us in Christ, that we are unleavened. Our sin has been covered. And so even today, and then through this week, give us the mindfulness, give us the discipline to clean out the leaven and to live a life this week that glorifies you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.